This is the Carlin versus Joe podcast on ESPN Radio. Monday shows always have the potential to be the best shows of the week. We are stacked with content. We are fired up with energy. We're ready to serve you, the people. Alongside Gabe Neitzel, I'm Joe Fortenball. This is Carlin versus Joe on ESPN Radio. We are presented by Progressive Insurance. Big man out sick, doing well from what we understand, but needs a little recovery time. Gabe Neitzel steps in in his place. Your Bucks are looking pretty good. You and I oh, talked yeah. last week. What's going to happen with the Bucks in the second half of the season? They're out firing, are they not? Oh, they are. Doc's got them playing some good defense, playing hard defense against Minnesota and uh, Philadelphia over the weekend. And now they've got a little bit of an easier stretch here for the next four games. Look out for the Bucks; They're coming for that two seed in the East. All right, couple games. Take it easy. It's just the Sixers, but yeah. <laughs> it was funny because I was watching the betting pattern yesterday. I wanted to bet Milwaukee. Money's coming in on Philly. I'm thinking to myself, maybe there's something I'm missing here. I'll sit it out. Bucks blow them out. I was missing nothing. I was dead right the whole time. Let it go. Neither here nor there at the moment. <laughs> Plenty more opportunities where that came from. We'll have some pizza monies for you later today. Big news out of the National Football League as we get started. Peter King of NBC Sports has noted that he's going to be retiring. Long-time reporter for the NFL. One of the best, if not the best, to ever do it. His Monday morning quarterback column was at Sports Illustrated for the longest time. Now he's writing over at NBC. He announced this morning he's going to be stepping away. Um, before we get into the nugget he dropped in there, which classic Peter, even on the way out the door, gives you something fantastic to discuss. I mean, Gabe, I'd imagine as someone who consumes sports as voraciously as you do, you probably made reading Peter King every Monday a staple of your life. Did you not? Oh, 100%. Like, I feel if you have grown up, so I'm 38 years old, I feel if you're my age, you've made Peter King a part of your NFL viewing experience because you wanted to see what he had to write in Monday Morning Quarterback or Football Morning in America, as he's called it now, over at NBC. But, I mean, Peter's been doing this for so long, he had a lot of good information. As a Packers fan, as a young Packers fan in the 90s, he's the one who broke the story about Brett Favre going into rehab after Brett won his first MVP. So I've always had like this, this vision and idea of Peter King kind of guiding me through every single football season. He was always so good. He's so good at so many things, but he was so good around draft time in his column, finding a way to let you know a surprise pick that was going to take place without predicting it, right? Like you had to read between the lines, but Mm -hmm. he was very good at making sure that he had come across some information. He wanted to get it to his readers, but he also knew he couldn't just come out and blatantly say, hey, look for this to happen there at this time. He could subtly weave it together, and if you understood how to read the column the right way, which basically just meant paying attention to what the man was writing, you would come across some outstanding nuggets that he would get across to you that he couldn't just blatantly shovel into your face. And with that said, he's got some suggestions in the column this morning for how the Bears may handle the number one overall pick. NFL scouting combine in Indianapolis this week. It's going to be wild because if you remember, Evan, I need your help with this. Jump on. You were telling me this before the show. Last year when the Bears traded back from the number one pick with Carolina, what time of year did they do that? This week they basically came to the agreement, came to the structure of the deal at the combine, and then it was officially done the Friday after the combine ended. Okay, so the combine is this week. So basically, Bears contingent in Indianapolis were thinking maybe, because they've also set this deadline, 
they could get the parameters of a deal done this week and announce it next week, just like we saw last year. Yeah, or announce it on Friday. Save it for next week. Yeah, <laughs> we need we need to drag this out as long as humanly possible. One hundred percent. Gabe, you work in the same business I do. Naturally, we need oh, yeah. to drag this out as long as possible. Do we not? No. Yes, because we have content this week from yeah. the combine. So yeah. all the all the combine content's going to come this week. Yeah, just do it next week. If you want to do it Monday, do it Tuesday, whenever. But yeah, you don't need to do it this week. Doesn't need to be a five o'clock news dump on Friday. I would like to reckless recklessly speculate the rest of this week and then come out Monday and then yell at the Bears for not having given us this information, and then they'll give us the information. I'll look like a fool. We'll come out Tuesday. We'll break it down for a full week, and then we'll turn our attention. By then, we're in mid-March, right? By then, we're in mid-March. Baseball season's right around the corner. We got plenty of content. All right, so with that in mind, here's what Peter King said in his column this morning. Quote, I suppose the Bears are going to trade the top pick. I know nothing, but that seems to be the way the wind is blowing. What I say, the Bears could keep Justin Fields, and they should, and trade the first pick down once or twice and build the kind of supporting cast a team needs to contend. All right, so Peter King continues here. Suppose general manager Ryan Poles traded the top pick down one spot to Washington. Washington goes up to one. They take Caleb Williams. And then the Bears end up getting the second pick overall, which is Washington's pick. They get a second round pick from Washington. And then they get a 2025 first round pick. Then Poles talks to Atlanta, who's sitting at eight. Atlanta trades up for a quarterback at number two, which the Bears are now holding. The Bears slide back to eight, and what they get is the eighth overall pick. They get a second-round pick for that current season. Then they get a first and second-round pick next year, which would essentially mean trade from one to two and then two to eight, and you walk away with a grand total of three first-round picks and three second-round picks. Your thoughts on that haul? First off, did I even explain that properly? Can anyone even follow that? I think you did. I felt like I lost myself halfway through. (laughs) Well, because it's a lot of moving parts, and that's, again, why Peter's columns are as long as they are. A lot of moving parts. Got to make sure everybody's on the same page. Yeah, it's like, Peter, if you're going to shotgun something like this out there, make it cleaner. Make it cleaner so (laughs) morons like me can can relay it to the people a lot simpler. All right, so there it is. So, again, three first-round picks and three second-round picks would be the total return as Chicago would trade to two with Washington and then would trade again back to eight with Atlanta. Yeah, so you would end up with the eighth and ninth picks in this year's draft. Because they already have number nine. Because they already have number nine from a trade from last year. You know, or excuse me, the... The, the first pick this year is the trade from last year. The ninth is their actual pick for this year. You end up with you know more first-round draft picks next year. You'd have your own plus two more that you're going to be holding in here. You get your own second-round pick plus two more second-round picks this year. That It still seems just a little bit light to me, and maybe that's because in my brain I keep thinking about the, the, the haul that San Francisco did to move up from 12 all the way to 3, and granted that's a larger jump. So they had to give up, you know, two more first round picks in addition to number 12 overall plus a third round pick. I feel like they could get another second or a third in there somewhere because it just feels a hair light to me if you're going from one all the way back to eight. All right. So to put those two side by side, when the Niners traded up for Trey Lance, they were not trading to number one overall, correct? No, they were trading to three. They went from 12 to three. Okay. They went from 12 to three. So what they did was to go from 12 to three, they gave up three first round picks and one third-round pick. This would essentially be the Bears going from one to eight and getting three first-round picks, but three second-round picks. 
Now, they have to do it through two trades, so it's more than the overall return that the Niners gave up, but the Niners didn't go up to one. They went up to three as we lay all this out. It feels like a pretty good haul, but again, I'm kind of like you thinking to myself, well, I've been told Caleb Williams is generational, and people have thrown so many wild scenarios out there. I just don't know if this is wild enough. No, I think in I it's think actually you can pretty get a good. lot of right, it is pretty good. It's actually good. really good. But I think you could probably get another pick out of Washington, don't you? Squeeze them. So the Washington side of the equation is you flip-flop picks one and two, and yep. then you pick up a one next year from Washington, and you pick up a two this year. It feels like you could get more for them. Yeah, no, I'm 100% there with you because it seems like all directions are pointing towards they really want Caleb Williams, right? At the, the second that they hired Cliff Kingsbury in Washington, everyone's going, ooh, well, Kingsbury was there in USC last year. I mean, so everyone's starting to connect those dots, right? And if everybody's connecting those dots, then maybe that means they're just a little bit more desperate and you can, I'm not saying, you know, squeeze them for another first round pick, but I think you could find them and get another you know, another third round pick, maybe a you know a second round pick three years down the road. You should be able to get something a little bit more out of Washington if they really want that franchise quarterback that everybody thinks Caleb Williams is. It puts a lot of pressure on Justin Fields, which is how it should be. But it puts a ton of pressure on Fields because you're passing on Caleb Williams. You're passing on a new quarterback. You're essentially saying we are going to do everything we need to to maximize what this number one pick overall is worth. And then we are going to build around Justin Fields, and he is going to be our guy. And he's going to be going to, what, his third offensive coordinator in yep. four seasons mm-hmm. with a unit that continues to get better, a defense that continues to get better, a team that I think is primed to win nine-plus games this coming year. I can get more into that down the line. But as we focus so much on the quarterback position, the defense, the record in one-score games, the way they closed out last season, the picks, the salary cap money that they've got available, this team is set set to take a big step forward next year. But it means you do so with Justin Fields as your quarterback, and it puts a ton of pressure on Fields to step up next next year. He's not a sophomore quarterback entering year two where it's like, okay, man, like Bryce Young, it's time to, you know, show us something. Like, you've got to go out there and you got to legitimately win games for them. Yeah. So let me ask you this. If you're Ryan Poles, I know what you're going to – if you end up doing this, you end up trading that first uh, that first overall pick – and you're investing in Justin Fields, clearly you end up picking the fifth-year option up for Fields, which that deadline is you know, still a little bit of ways away here in the NFL offseason. But do you feel good about it? Do you feel good about picking up the fifth-year option for Justin no. Fields? No. It's like you have to. You have well, to. Yeah, you do yeah. all this, you have to, but you can't Correct. feel great. The completion percentage, the processing of information, the injuries, he's missed way too many games for my liking. There are enough red flags there. I'd be willing to take uh, the shot with Caleb Williams because I still have a ton of money to spend, and I still have a lot of draft picks. But more on that throughout the course of the show. Alongside Game Nights, while I'm Joe Fordenball, Carlin versus Joe is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive save nearly $750 on average. Everyone is wondering if LeBron and the Lakers can still make a run. Not this show. We're going to tell you how the Lakers season actually ends. That's coming up next. Carlin versus Joe with Game Nights, in for Carlin on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. This is the Carlin versus Joe podcast on ESPN Radio. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle 
and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Wing, it's O'Neal, a wide open three. Yes, sir. Royce O'Neal puts the Suns up 13 and potentially drives a dagger into LeBron and the Lakers. A minute 23 to go. It's 121, 108. This one's over. Phoenix wins it by 10, 123 to 113. All I said, you know, you just got to go back, look to the drawing board, look at the film, see where you can get better, and keep working, man. Keep chipping at the rock. Good news for the Lakers. Warriors also lost yesterday, so they didn't get jumped in the standings. Los Angeles still 31 and 28, the 9 seed. Warriors 29 and 27, the 10th seed. Lakers a half game up on the Dubs for that last play-in spot. Lakers 3 games back the Mavericks for the 8th seed. Alongside Gabe Neitzel, I'm Joe Fortenball. This is Carlin versus Joe on ESPN Radio. We are presented by Progressive Insurance. That was the good news. And it ended relatively quickly. So quickly, I came back from the commercial and gave it to you and then reset the show. But there's a lot of radio left. And that's for the bad news. Because the Lakers came off the break, unlike the Milwaukee Bucks, unlike the Oklahoma City Thunder, unlike the Boston Celtics, some of the contenders who decided to start making statements or continue making statements in the second half of the season. Lakers now 1-2 since the All-Star break. That one win was a five-point victory at home over the San Antonio Spurs. They didn't cover the spread. They didn't look very good. The other two games were losses. An 18-point defeat on the road at Golden State. No LeBron James in that game. And then yesterday's 10-point loss at Phoenix against the Suns. Gabe, how's this season end for the Los Angeles Lakers? Because everywhere I look, first take specifically, talking about whether or not the Lakers could still make a deep run like last season. A lot of people believe that to be the case. How do you see this season ending for them? I I just don't see that with this year's team. I know they magically did it a year ago, but that's because they dramatically altered their roster. They completely changed just about everything about them outside of Anthony Davis and LeBron James at the trade deadline a year ago. 
So they, they used the month of, you know, late February and into March to try to make sure all those pieces made sense. And then they were able to go on this magical run that ended in the Western Conference Finals. I don't see it this year. Uh, th- those pieces aren't making as much sense as they did a year ago. Those pieces aren't playing as well as they did a year ago. I, I don't think they're falling out of the play-in because the Jazz are sitting there below 500. I don't see that happening for the Lakers. But I think that the, eventually the Warriors do jump them, and then I think they lose at Golden State in the 9-10 game, and their season ends with one loss in the play-in tournament, and we're going to spend a long, long offseason talking about what's wrong with the Lakers. I mean, you're three games over 500. You're number 18 in the NBA in offensive efficiency. You're number 16 in the NBA in defensive efficiency. And oh, by the way, the rest of the way out, you have the fifth hardest schedule in the National Basketball Association. Like, I'm with you. Am I supposed to believe they're going to turn on the engine like last year? There was a reason that was going to happen last year. They started slow. They retooled the roster. They built up the chemistry. They played strong down the stretch. But let's not forget, even when they made it to the Western Conference Finals, which they did, and it was impressive, they beat the Warriors to get there the round before. And when they got to the Western Conference Final, they got swept out and annihilated by the Denver Nuggets. So you may have reached a certain level, but you didn't really size up well with the team on that level, which shows how far away you are from winning the West. I mean, I don't... You're three and a half back of the Pelicans right now who are the seventh seed. I don't know, maybe you close that gap, but the Pelicans play hard. They have a plus four point differential. They're turning it on in the second half of the season. Zion's having a pretty good year. They're healthy. Like, I don't know what's going to happen for the Lakers that's going to change anything. James played yesterday. Davis played yesterday. They went up against a pretty good Suns team. They lost that game. I don't know what's going to happen between now and the end of the season, except for hoping, A, you stay healthy, which is a big hope, and B, someone else falls apart. I mean, at best, you stay above Golden State, but if you don't, do you see him getting past the Mavericks for the eight seed? I don't. I don't see them. I don't see them entering that conversation of being, oh, we can lose a game in the play-in tournament. I don't see that. I, I just don't because again, you mentioned how hard their schedule is the rest of the way. For a team that's hovering around 500, suddenly that means okay, so you've played the easier part of your schedule. You're 31 and 28. You're, you're going to be better than that against a better schedule when your roster's really not any better? I, I don't see them chasing down the Mavericks. I don't see them chasing down the Pelicans and being in that 7-8 game. I think they're that 8-9 team. And we just saw how they measured up against the Golden State Warriors just a couple of nights ago. Got smacked by 18 points. They're, they're just not a really great basketball team. And then let's, let's just play it out. I guess by the miracle of miracles, they find a way to win two games in the play-in. I understand how going up against a team like Minnesota or if it ends up being Oklahoma City, I understand how on paper, oh, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, they've been there. This Minnesota team, this Oklahoma City team, they haven't been there. But ultimately, those two teams are still light years ahead to me of where the Lakers are right now. I understand you've got the the experience advantage, but the actual better basketball team would be on the other side. And in a seven-game series, I'm taking the actual better basketball team. I mean, if you end up getting Minnesota and AD's going up against Rudy Gobert, then it's LeBron versus all the rest of those dudes. Because like when you're talking about who are the five best players on the court in that series, yeah, you got LeBron and AD, but the next three belong to Minnesota, Anthony if not Edwards, four, five, and six as well. Yeah, Gobert, Anthony, Anthony Towns. Like, it goes on and on. And that Minnesota team has a little bit of playoff experience. They might not have a lot, but they've been there. They're not that green around the edges. So imagine you get there. Imagine you navigate the in-season, the play-in tournament. 
imagine you get bounced early. Question turns to LeBron James in the future, because we've been kicking all this around. I think everyone understands with his son playing at USC, being in Los Angeles, that city fits the lifestyle and the business aspect of LeBron James very, very well. So if he wouldn't want to leave, it makes sense. But is staying with the Lakers the best basketball decision? Like, all things equal, strictly from a basketball standpoint, is staying there the best thing for his career? Probably not. Just because it seems like in terms of assets, they're completely capped out. They used so many to do what they did a year ago, and I'm sure they could get creative and maybe try to find a way to add another star to that roster. But as this roster stands right now, no. As this roster stands right now, he should have entertained when Golden State came calling during the trade deadline. He should have entertained that. <laughs> now, I don't know I, I, I don't know what LeBron James's basketball aspirations are at this point as he, you know, as as he's 40 years old, but if you wanted to win another championship, that probably would have been interesting. I don't know if that Golden State team with LeBron James because he somehow makes an older team even older, but I don't know if that team wins a championship. It would have been entertaining to see if they could. And I think that I think he has to keep his basketball options open. I don't think he has to, if, if he just says, I'm staying in Los Angeles, like he did just a couple of days ago, saying, hey, I, I want to be a Laker for the rest of my career. I, I don't foresee another championship coming with the Lakers. It seems like they're just kind of stretched out asset-wise. And to me, they're not going to be able to surround an aging James, an aging injured Anthony Davis with enough to put them over the top with some of these younger, more exciting teams in the West. See, we used to have these discussions when he was in Cleveland and in Miami, that whole stretch of time where how many years in a row did he go to the NBA Finals? What was it, nine? Ten years, something like that? I'm not sure. Every year he was there. Eight years, Evan? Okay. Eight years in a row he was in the NBA Finals. Eight. Now, he won some of those. He lost more of them. But the point is, every year we saw him there. So we just took for granted how many opportunities he was going to have in a ring. But since he joined the Lakers, which wasn't exactly last year... He's been to one finals, one, and he won, and it was in the bubble, and I'm not going to knock it like a lot of people do. That's not for this conversation, but that's it. I mean, do we even see him in an NBA finals ever again, in your opinion? Now, forget about winning it. Do we ever even see him on the the grandest stage competing for it ever again? I'm saying no. I I don't think we see it. It feels like that's the easiest way to go. Like, that feels like the smart answer, right? What would lead us to believe otherwise? It's not a knock on him. It just doesn't look like his team is constructed in a manner in which they can compete with the other teams. Denver is a team. It took time. They built them up. Minnesota, they built them up. They're taking their time. Oklahoma City, they're taking their time. You acquire assets. You put them together. You coach them up. A lot of these teams try to just assemble star talent and think they can go out and win. Look at Phoenix. Phoenix. Doesn't necessarily work. It even took LeBron, to your point last week, time when they were in Miami, right? It did not Mm -hmm. happen the first year. You had to go out. You had to form the chemistry in order to pull it off. I don't know. I think you're right. I don't think we see him in the finals ever again. Disappointing? Probably. I mean, I get probably because not for the again, you, you should know. I mean, you, you, you got so used to him being there and I would love for him to get to another one just because at his age, I'm still amazed at his age, he's doing the things that Agreed. he's doing. It's it's remarkable because this is supposed to be a young man's game and he's still able to go out there and be, he's not the best player in the league anymore, but he's still a top 10 guy in this league. I would love for him to see go to, for, for him to go on that run. He just needs more help now. He's not able to drag Booby Gibson. He's not able to drag a beat up uh, a Cavs roster to an NBA Finals anymore. He just needs more help. And the Lakers just really haven't been able to figure out how to get him more help at this point. From the NBA to college hoops, it is finally time 
to discuss the topic that everyone is yelling, screaming, and fighting about from this past weekend. We making too big a deal, not enough of a deal, about what happened in the Duke-Wake Forest game at the end. He's Gabe Neitzel. I'm Joe Fornball. That's coming up next. Carlin versus Joe, ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. This is the Carlin versus Joe podcast on ESPN Radio. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. These are people who belong where they are, who are being run into or whatever the case may be, by people who absolutely do not belong where they are. I think it's important because you want to have you know that special moment for the student athletes and the student body to share that moment together. If you can't do it safely, you've got to eliminate it. At least give the impression that you can't do what you want to do. You can see they are ready to jump the wall. They are ready to storm the floor. You can see it's happening. The only people that aren't ready are those that need to prevent it from happening or at least prevent it from reaching a certain scale. Oh, boy. Big discussion today. Court storming. Should we eradicate it? He's Gabe Neitzel. I'm Joe Fortenball. This is Carlin versus Joe on ESPN Radio. We are presented by Progressive Insurance. Let's bring in someone who was there, someone who can speak to the matter, Chris Spatola, ESPN college basketball analyst. He was on the call for the Duke-Wake Forest game over the weekend. Chris, we appreciate the time. Let's just start right here. Your initial reaction to what unfolded in the wake of that game, I guess pun intended, as Wake Forest took down Duke on Saturday. Yeah, good pun usage. Always love a good pun there, Joe. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, it, you, you said it coming in, first of all. I mean, the fact that we continue to have this conversation, should we, shouldn't we, we obviously all universally sense uh, some danger involved with this and that there's probably something wrong uh, with, with this this practice that uh, that we continue to have this conversation, um, look, I, there's a there's a macro way I feel about it, and then there's an actual being in the building that I can share with you guys. First of all, from a macro level, like there is a giant contradiction we are operating under with these court storms. In other words, we go to amazing lengths to keep people off the floor pregame and during the game. You got to be credentialed. We have security. Like we go to amazing lengths for obvious reasons to keep fans away from the playing surface. There's obviously a philosophical reason for that. And then all of a sudden when that clock hits zero, that 
philosophical feeling about that all of a sudden goes away. It washes away. So everything, all of these lengths we go to to keep fans from the playing surface before the game and during washes away for some reason when that clock hits zero. And the reason is, and we know, it goes back. I mean, it used to be these stormings of the court used to be these charming, spontaneous moments of euphoria. Let's all celebrate together it's not that anymore it, it, it's uh it's become a tourist moment it, it's contrived it's premeditated it's enabled it's it's become theater the other thing guys and and this is just was my sort of feeling in the building and when i drove up to the arena pregame and it's something i think that's being left at the conversation some of the stuff i've heard this morning is is the intoxication level of a lot of these students who went on to that court like they were drinking, and again, I'm not against alcohol consumption, especially when you're going to a sporting event or doing a radio hit. I'm, I'm drunk right now. So this is not about alcohol consumption. This is about intoxication level and whether or not those who are intoxicated to the level that some of them were. I mean, they were drinking. That game was at 2 Eastern time. They were drinking at 9 a.m., which is great. Again, it, it contributed to the environment. It's one of the best environments I've been in in, in, a, in a while. But I think that's one of the things that's being left out of this conversation is you are now allowing intoxicated young people to interact with players in, in whatever form. And, and that's, that's, that's another area. How do you sort of, you know, how, how do you earmark who those students are who are drinking, et cetera? There's just too many factors at play uh, that I think clearly Wake was not ready to manage and I, I think have become a little bit difficult to manage as this court storming thing has become more theater. So ultimately, Chris, do you think that there still is a place for court storming in college basketball? I don't. I, I really don't. I mean, look, the, the, the NFL, these professional organizations, you know, the NFL, the NBA, I mean, there is no way that they would allow this to happen. And again, it goes back to that philosophical decision that these organizations have made that I was mentioning at the beginning. There is a reason. Call it safety. Call it, you know, they just, there shouldn't be you know, fans milling around on the court, be it organization, whatever the reason is, I think we can understand intuitively what those might be. You know, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, they're going to whatever lengths they can to keep fans off of the field, pregame, during the game, and postgame. And so I, I think college athletics needs to start taking that into account, particularly when, Again, it's, it's certainly about the athletes. I mean, there's too much money at stake for a Kyle Filipowski or for a Caitlin Clark, certainly for the safety of coaches and these players, but then obviously for the safety of fans. I mean, that was the other thing, sitting courtside guys, that, that I was first concerned about was a fan being trampled. And, and just, again, there was a – and I mean this figuratively – there was a violence to that court storm the other day. I mean, they were on the court before the clock hit zero – they were rushing at full speed. There was an intoxication level with, with a lot of them. There was a, a figurative violence with that storm. And again, that's, that's not something, no matter what your security procedure is or how, how prepared you think you are for a court storm, you can never prepare for the degree that it's going to end up being. And, and so I, am, I have been for a long time. It wasn't just my experience the other day. I have been anti-court storm for a while. And partly, guys, because I lived it, man. Like, I spent five years on the bench at Duke working for Coach K, and we had the court stormed every time we lost on the road. 
And there were some experiences that were not as bad as others, but the reality is there were some that make you say, man, this just should not be happening. There's too many things bad that could occur. Chris Spatola, ESPN college basketball analyst, joining us here on Carlin versus Joe. Uh, let's dwell down on that. I- I've never been in the eye of this, especially when it's happening to you, right? Like they're not jumping on to celebrate you. You're with Duke. They're storming the court because they beat Duke. What's it like to be in that situation where you're trying to get your guys off the court knowing all these people are celebrating the other team? Yeah, it, there's a helplessness to it. And I, I don't want to o- over-dramatize it. It, it, it. You know, like, I mean... I'm prior military. I, I've been in some, some gnarly situations. I, again, I don't want to be overdramatic, but the, the, the fact is, Joe, like when you are a competitor on the court, be it coach or player, that is a sanctuary. Like there, there is those competitors, those athletes and coaches have every right to feel safe in that environment, that they are in a bubble, so to speak, that they are protected. And th- there were games where, you, you all of a sudden feel helpless. Like, who is, who is here to – now, some schools handled it better than others. Some schools give you – you know, they rope it off. They give you a little alleyway. But the other thing, Joe, is like, again, if you're Duke or you're Carolina or you're Kansas or you're Purdue, like, there is – again, everybody's got a phone now. Like, there is a tourist element to this, and there were times where – you know, students are running right up to Coach K while they're storming the court and, ha- and saying stuff to him. Now, again, he's a big boy. It's certainly not the first time. But should he have to deal with that? And should he have to, you know, put himself in a situation where he's got to exhibit some control relative to the engagement he's facing? I mean, it's just, you know, that's the other argument about the court storm the other day. Anybody, anybody who would posit an argument that John Shire could have handled this differently than he did, I think don't, doesn't understand the, the, the full circumstance of, of this type of, of thing. I mean, it, this should not be on the coach. It should not be on Kyle Filipowski to have to exit the floor in, in, a, in an appropriate amount of time. I mean, again, that playing service is a sanctuary for the competitors. And when, when, when those competitors don't feel safe coming down to the end of a game – I think that's that's negligent, and I think that's a real problem. ESPN college basketball analyst Chris Spatola with us here. Carlin versus Joe, ESPN Radio. He was on the call for Duke Wake Forest Saturday for ESPN. Chris, that was fantastic. We appreciate the insights. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Be well. Wild. Absolutely wild. All right. Gabe and I are going to get into that next. We'll probably open up the phones as well. If you want to get in on court storming, 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Is it time to outlaw it? Gabe Neitzel, Joe Fortenball. The one way that court storming could be safe, you'll hear that as well after I have this from Indeed. How about that, Indeed? Big boys out today. So you got to go to the bench. It's the perfect time to gear up and connect to quality candidates, and there's no better way to do that than through Indeed, the hiring platform that makes it easy to attract, screen, and interview candidates all in the same place. Their interview tool helps you schedule and conduct video interviews right from your employer dashboard. Nix the hassle. Start hiring at Indeed.com slash credit. This is the Carlin versus Joe podcast on ESPN Radio.
fans do not belong on the court. I don't like court storms, never have. When are we going to ban court storms? Like, when are we going to ban that? Someone's going to get hurt. I absolutely feel like it was personal. Well, I mean, if you listen to that, it feels pretty one-sided as to how this argument should go. Is anyone going to take up for the pro-court-storming side of the debate? He's Gabe Neitzel. I'm Joe Fortenball. This is Carlin versus Joe on ESPN Radio. Saturday at Wake Forest, the Demon Deacons take down Duke 83-79. to Students storm the court afterwards. Kyle Filipowski, star player for the Blue Devils, gets caught up in the court storming, appears to get injured, sprained ankle. We're still waiting for more details on that, but he needs help getting off the court. And now today, one of the major talking points is whether or not court storming should be banned. Gabe Neitzel, floor is yours. Your thoughts on the matter. I am, first of all, I am (laughs) pro. He sits back and he lifts the microphone up. here we go. Get ready, everybody. (laughs) I am pro court storming because court I don't want to be the old guy. Be oh, you know, th- th- no, you can't be yelling. You can't be yelling at college kids, telling them what to do. You come off as the old guy, right? First yes. of all, first and foremost. So I, I don't want to do that. And second of all, is there? I want to. I want to make it perfectly clear that a consequence of losing a college basketball game should not be potential injuries. So yes, I want to be able to find a way to do it safely. But this whole idea of banning court storming, how in in actuality. In reality, how do you enforce that? How do you enforce banning court storming? As was just pointed out with Chris Spatola, who's our previous guest. Yeah, I mean, before the, before the game, during the game, you're trying to keep people off the floor. Like, so you're not allowed on the floor, but they're still going to allow it to happen. If a group of college kids has it in their mind they're going on the floor, there's not enough security out there to keep them off the floor. I don't want to hear about, oh, you could put up guardrails. Oh, really? What, what do you think happened in Kansas this year after the Jayhawks beat Oklahoma in football? They jumped over those rails that you have on a football stadium, and not only did they go on the field, they took the goalpost out of the stadium and threw it in a pond on campus. This is remarkable. Which was, which was remarkable, endearing, and everybody had fun with that story when it happened this past fall. Incredible I don't teamwork. Know, Oh, yeah, right? How do you get a group of people to, like, organize and do that? that that's the incredible well, part number one, that. alcohol. Number two, yes. underpants gnomes, right? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, get underpants, question marks, turn profit. <laughs> All right, no. so, go but, ahead. But I just don't know how practically you can actually ban it, because you're not going to be putting up fencing at, inside of an arena just in case this happens. Like you're not going to have, oh, and now you're driving and now you run into a chain link fence because they put up a fence just in case the team wins as you get knocked out of bounds. Like that's not practical either. I do not see a practical solution that anybody's thrown out there in order to actually ban this from happening. All right, so let's go with what Seth Greenberg said earlier today. Former coach, ESPN college basketball analyst. He was on Unsportsmanlike this, this morning. He pitched this idea. Tell me what you think try to have the agility to, to still have that moment, whether it's put a minute on the clock and let people get off safely or bring those students, the players, into the stands and still have that moment. It's not running on the, on, on the court, and, uh, but, it, but it is something that's a little bit different. Uh, it, 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 it is part of college athletics, but to me right now, I look at it, the liability number of the universities are under and the potential for something really catastrophic because of the way people act, eventually someone's going to get pushed and a player's going to swing. Who's going to be blamed? 
All right, so the idea of a, say, 60-second clock where you have just enough time to get all the players off the court and then the fans have carte blanche to storm the court. Sounds good in theory. In theory, this sounds very good. What about in practice? Uh, in practice, I think that is impossible. I think you're better. The, the better part of that idea is having the athletes go to the students in the stands because you're telling me that if you put 60 seconds on that clock, those college students who may or may not be intoxicated, depending upon the start time of the game, are then going to look at that clock and obey that? Like, have you been around college kids? Like, that's just not how it all, they operate at all. All right. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, you throw booze into this situation. And by the way, part of this is supposed to be fun. There's nothing that strips the fun away from storming the court, like a series of rules for how to storm the court. Correct. Like, once you set up all the rules for how to storm the court, no one's going to want to do it anymore. It's kind of an outlaw sort of behavior. Once you take the outlawness away from the situation, no one's going to be intrigued to do it. That's why people like doing it. It's dangerous. You're not supposed to be down there. There's that element of getting in trouble. That's what makes it so appealing. Number one, I hate the idea of us having to possibly eliminate this because all 100%. I've heard about today are all these people who are talking about how we need to shut it down and all the examples of why it's a problem. Most recently, what happened Saturday. But what about April 4th, 1983? Does anyone remember April 4th, 1983? NC State 54, Houston 52. National Championship game, New Mexico. Jimmy V running on the court after his Wildcats win the game, Wolfpack, excuse me, win the game, and fans and players all over the court going crazy. That is an iconic moment. Because of Jimmy V looking for someone to hug, no doubt, but there's people everywhere celebrating the moment. We're focused so much on all these negative court stormings today. There have been so many good ones. The kick six on the field, Auburn versus Alabama. Mm -hmm. Like We have so many iconic moments in which people didn't get hurt, in which there weren't problems. So I hate the idea of eliminating this. Number two, a rule to set up. You don't get to storm the court when you're the favorite. This is being lost in the shuffle by everybody. Wake Forest was a three-point favorite. Vegas said you're supposed to win that game. You don't get to storm the court if you're a favorite. So that's that's the first rule out of the gate moving forward if we're going to put rules on this, is that they have to let the crowd know, hey, we're a favorite, doesn't matter what happens, can't storm the court. Storming the court is for underdogs only. Needed to get that ran off my chest. Problem. I would love to continue advocating for why we should be allowed to storm the courts, but I think now that this has happened... You're entering a world where you can't have it anymore because the knowledge is out there that someone can get hurt because someone just got hurt. And while it wasn't serious, the next time something like this happens, if it's much more serious and Achilles gets ruptured, a knee gets blown out, a kid loses his entire final season of college, we're going to sit there and go, we knew this was a problem because of what happened in the Duke Wake Forest game. And because you have that, because you have that piece of evidence to draw on, you're not going to be able to sit there and blame ignorance. Oh my gosh, we never thought someone could get hurt. We just thought the kids were having a good time. This is so unfortunate. That excuse lasted all the way up until this weekend. And now that we know this can be dangerous, as much as it kills me to say it, 
you have to put something in place because the lawsuits are going to come the next time someone gets hurt. Like, imagine in a couple weeks if Wake Forest is hosting a big game, there's another upset, they storm the court, some kid ruptures his Achilles, as a result he can't play anymore, his draft stock falls, do you think he has grounds for a lawsuit? You'd almost have to think he does because we just saw something happen two weeks prior and Wake Forest would have done nothing, presumably, to rectify this security concern. Well, and there are so many cameras, not just the cameras everybody has in their pocket. But, I mean, we saw multiple angles of Kyle Filipowski and the contact that was made, right? Like, there were multiple angles because there's so many different cameras in the arena for these games now because every single one of them are televised. I I still don't know. I I think you just have to try to... Organize it better. I don't know if it's just it's seriously just ropes kind of going, hey, this is the area where you can go instead of a mad dash. I still don't know a way that you can ban it. It just doesn't make sense of a practical way that this could actually happen to keep college students off the floor. I hate the idea of banning it, but now that the knowledge is out there that someone can get hurt, it just feels like we're playing with fire moving forward. Everyone who's on hold, Brian, Brian, Hunter, I see you. We're coming to you guys next. Carlin versus Joe. Alongside Gabe Neitzel, I'm Joe Fornball right here on ESPN Radio. This is the Carlin versus Joe podcast on ESPN Radio.